please enjoy the following conversation with Lania Gandhi, a behavioral science practitioner and adjunct assistant professor at the Chicago Booth School of Business. Lania's insights shed light on the forces shaping our decisions and offer shortcuts and tips on how to design our decisions with wisdom and intent. So my name is Lania Gandhi, Lania, like a knee. Um, and as, uh, as our friends at the Ivy mentioned, I am both a consultant in the space of behavioral science, bringing insights from psychology and experimentation to business. And I'm a professor at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, where I teach students to use those same skills in their jobs. Right now I'm teaching a lab course where we actually pair students up with companies to work on projects throughout the year. So if any of you are interested in sponsoring that as a company in the future academic years, please feel free to talk with me afterwards. Uh, now, I'm not a typical professor if you look at all the University of Chicago uh, Booth Business School staff. For one, I'm not uh, a wise old man wearing tweed. Uh, <laughs> probably tell. Uh, but also, I focus a lot on applications. So a lot of my colleagues focus on really deep research on which I rely. But most of my teaching, my talking, and my consulting focus on how do we take those insights from the literature and make them actually useful in our personal and professional lives. And so tonight, we're going to talk about decision making. And I want to level set on what I think of as a decision for this talk. Decisions can be really small. They can be how much you decided to imbibe tonight before you sat down, how many drinks you had. They could be a little bit bigger, your decision to come here tonight. They could be bigger than that, your decision to put some money down and subscribe as a standard or a prime member to the Ivy. Or bigger than that, deciding to come to Chicago. What we're going to cover tonight will apply to all of those different types of decisions. Sound good? All right, so like I said, I'm not a typical professor, so I do like to start with a contribution by someone that I think of as one of the biggest fans of behavioral science out there, Scott Adams. Now, this is the creator of Dilbert. It may be too small for some of you to read, so I'll read it to you. Dilbert is talking to uh, a guy who's uh, working with the trash. Why does it seem as if most of the decisions in my workplace are made by drunken lemurs? Decisions are made by people who have time, not people who have talent. Well, why are talented people so busy? They're fixing the problems made by people who have time. <laughs> now, I, I love Scott Adams. I think he's actually quite wise in applying behavioral science in a lot of his cartoons, if you start to pay attention to it. Um, with this one, I want to take a bit of a different tack, though. Tonight, I want to talk about why we might seem like drunken lemurs a lot of the time in our decisions, why we might end up making errors in our decision making and going to the core of that from a behavioral science perspective. And then I want to suggest it's not just because we're stupid humans or drunken lemurs, but often because we're interacting in an environment that's suboptimally designed for decision making. And that all of us, after you leave tonight, can hopefully go home and redesign your environment, physical, um, intellectual, electronic, to help you with your decisions going forward and help you avoid turning into a drunken lemur. All right, so let's start with diagnosis. And I know the I didn't anticipate the height of the, or the, the, the width of this room, so if you can't read anything in the back, just shout at me and I'll, I'll read it off the slide for you um, or lend you my glasses. <laughs> so we're going to start with diagnosis. What makes decision-making so hard? Well, as a behavioral scientist, someone in psychology, I maintain there are three key facts that logically follow to explain why we mess up so much, why decision-making can be hard. The first is that we have limited brain power. Now, I know you all went to college, so you're like, ah, oh, this doesn't apply to me. 
Another limitation to our brain power is rationality. So this pertains to the survey that I asked you guys to fill out before um, coming here tonight. We played a game. It's called Guess the Number Game. I asked you to guess a number between 0 and 100, and the winner would be the person whose guess was 2 thirds of the average of all the guesses. Follow? All right, so you're sitting there at your computer. You're like, well, this is stupid. <laughs> I want to get it done. If you just picked a number at random, it would be somewhere between 0 and 100. And if enough people did it at random, it would be pretty evenly distributed. So the average would be 50. Great. I do 2 thirds of 50, 33. Uh, but all these people went to college, right? They're Ivy people. They're going to think 33 too. So I should do 2 thirds of 33. But some of these people are kind of smart. So maybe I should do 2 thirds of 22 or 2 thirds of that. And so on and so on and so forth until you get to what number? What number? If everyone here was rational and thought everybody else was rational, and then I showed you, as I will, a histogram of the frequency by which each of these integers was chosen. So like, if five people chose 20, it would be five here. If everyone was rational and thought everybody else was fully rational, what would this graph look like? Hmm? Yeah, it would just be a giant spike here. Does everyone follow? That's what you did. You are not fully rational, or at the very least, you do not believe everyone else here is fully rational. Your distribution's all over the place. Your mean was 30, and 2 thirds of the mean was 20. We had some winners, but you know, I didn't actually ask for names. I apologize. So if you, if you uh, honor system, if you said 20, good for you. A plus for tonight. Um, and finally, limited self-control, perhaps the most fun limitation to our brain power. I think this picture speaks for itself. Yeah. Californians, of course. Um, some more cute ways of looking at self-control come from the marshmallow study um, done many decades ago, which you probably heard about by Walter Michel. I'm going to show you a couple of videos of someone who replicated this with cookies. And the, the whole scenario, for those of you who aren't familiar, is this little girl is sitting there, and there are two cookies underneath that tray in front of her. She can't see them, but she knows she's there. And the experimenter has told her if you want to cook one cookie right now, just ring that bell and you can eat the cookie. But if you wait 15 minutes, you can get both cookies. We have limited brain power. This is just part of our human slash drunken lemur experience. Limited attention, limited rationality, and limited self-control. That is our starting point fact. The second fact that we follow in psychology is that we use shortcuts to conserve our brain power. That is adapted. That is good. We need those shortcuts so we can conserve that brain power for the decisions that are really important in life. We call those in my field heuristics, if you've heard that term before, rules of thumb. So for instance, you wake up, it's Chicago, you look out the window, you see this, what do you do? What decision do you make that day? An umbrella, great. How deliberative were you about that? You didn't sit there thinking, well, should I bring an umbrella or not? Should it be the small or the big one? You, know, you just bring an umbrella. This guy, you see this happening to you, what do you do? You duck. You're not going to debate and deliberate and use your brain power on that decision to duck. So these are quick shortcuts that we have trained to do over time. Uh, another example came from former President Obama describing to Vanity Fair how he only wears a couple different suits so he doesn't have to think about it every day. He doesn't have to spend brain power on it. He can use that for more important decisions. These are all very adaptive mental shortcuts that we take.
Now, the trick is that a lot, not a lot, some of these shortcuts tend to backfire and do so in predictable ways. That's where a lot of the psychology research comes from and a lot of the things that you may have read about bias. When a shortcut predictably backfires, that's when these terms called bias come up. Half of you I asked to estimate the number of murders in Michigan last year, and half of you I asked to estimate the number of murders in Detroit last year. I said next, I meant last year. The bias is called ease of recall. So ease of recall is based on a rule of thumb, a shortcut that's actually pretty adaptive. When I have to make predictions about frequency or probability or how likely something is, I'm gonna think about past instances of seeing that thing. That's a normal thing to do and usually that works. In this case, it backfires and I can predict it's gonna backfire every time I do this. Why? Well, when I think about Detroit, I think about violence, I think about murder, think about everything in the news and the media and in TV about Detroit. So that inflates the percentage or the, the frequency that I think murders happen. When I think about Michigan, I don't know about you guys, but I think of those commercials saying, go fishing. Let's go camping, not let's go get murdered. Like, you don't think that when you think Michigan. And so your estimate ends up being lower. That's ease of recall, and that's a bias when a shortcut we take predictably backfires. Oh, by the way, 267. That was the number of murders in Detroit last year. So even your median was like almost a double. Okay, another example comes from the other survey question that I asked you, which was to estimate the rank of Chicago on the list of the 20 US cities with the highest per capita murder rate. Remember that question? All right, for those of you who didn't participate, think in your heads what you think the rank was. Let me show you. This is the answer. Eighth. Oh, yeah, she's right. She was right. Um, so it's part of this is because it's per capita, and you might not have paid attention to that when you're quickly doing the question. Um, but also, again, ease of recall. We think of violence when we think of Chicago. Let me show you your answers. This is your distribution. 87% of you guessed higher than eight. Again, because of how you think of Chicago. Um, or even today, you may have been subject to ease of recall. When you saw the advertisement for Ivy, Art and Science of Deciding Decisions, you saw it featured Linnea Gandhi. When you think of Gandhi, what do you think of? That dude, right? And so you're like, oh, it's gonna be an Indian chick. And it's a white girl, right? It's, I have the glasses though, I do. So at least I can match there. Um, so ease of recall happens all the time, happens a lot with stereotyping as well. Okay, so. We just went through the three very basic facts of why decision-making is so hard and why it's so fascinating for psychologists to study bias. We have limited brain power. We take shortcuts that are super normal to take, but those tend to backfire in fun and predictable ways. The point of tonight, though, is not just to focus on diagnosing it. It's to really move us beyond that and to design for that, to design to accommodate that to get us to better decisions. So, like I said, things get a lot easier around this if we design with those shortcuts in mind. And I'll give you some examples. But first, I wanna talk about a really easy framework. This is the one thing I want you to get out of the talk today, actually. Behavior is a function of the person in the environment. So whenever I talk about designing decisions, I like to go back to this equation by Kurt Lewin. He's a 1920s social psychologist, awesome guy. Uh, and this equation to me is so simple and, and yet so ignored in daily life. When we see stupid behaviors or, or decision-making errors, we just myopically focus on the P. That person's a drunken lemur. That person doesn't know what they're doing. That person needs to be educated. 
we focus not very much on the environment. How can we design around that person to accommodate their shortcomings, their limited brain power, in order to help them get to better decisions? And so this is the framework that I base a lot of my uh, consulting work and teaching off of and what we'll talk about for the rest of today. Let's do some fun examples, though. So let's look at stupid behaviors that I would argue might be caused more by stupid design than by humans being stupid. So let's start with a really simple decision, opening and closing a door. Who here can open and close doors? Great, okay, so this might not apply to you. Let's see. You know these doors? Where there's a, a pole here and a pole, they actually that's what the doors they have right here at this space. There's a pole on this side and a pole on this side, and you like everyone pushes on the pole side because it looks like you should pull. This is Richard Thaler, recent Nobel Prize winner, screwing up in our London campus. They had the exact same beautiful door design. In fact, he messed up so often early on when teaching there that he made them put these little signs, you can't see from where you're sitting, that say push on the push side of the door. They have them over there too on this, um, in this room. Um, actually, also, when we went to Sweden this uh, uh, November or December, we saw that the doors to the Nobel Museum have those stupid darn handles as well. You all know those handles, right? Fun fact, what are they called? They're called, well, they are called Norman doors. Any door that's kind of screwy is called the Norman door for bad design. Those handles themselves are called pull handles. They're, they're called a pull. <laughs> like, and yet they're on a push side of the door. Um, so I mentioned those doors. This happened to me like 10 minutes ago. Um, I'm lit, like that's my whole body weight. They've locked one of the doors, so that also trumps you for stupid decision making. Okay, so more fun design that might lead to bad outcomes and decisions. Yeah. Like that's just corporate irresponsibility right there. Um, you can't probably read from where you are, but this sign in the cycling lane says, give cyclists space. <laughs> it's very useful to access a fire hydrant behind bars. And this says, sure, it's convenient, but at what cost? No. If you like this, you can find a lot at sadanduseless.com. Yeah. Okay, so those are fun, silly examples. How about a really hard decision? And this is something that Richard Thaler is working on right now. This is, and this is publicly available, this is how you choose your health benefit plan at the University of Chicago. There are, the columns are four different plans. The features are in rows. This doesn't even include price, which is in uh, monthly units, and the, the numbers here are in yearly units, so that people's brains fritz up even more when they're comparing. How many people do you think actually make the right decision for themselves and their family when information is presented in this way? How many of you are certain you're in the right health plan? There are, there's a, an interesting paper, as a slight side note, uh, by George Lowenstein that talks, and it has data on a company that shows that people are actually in dominated plans, meaning for every level of healthcare spend they could do, there is a better plan for them in that company. But it's not their fault, it's the way the decision was designed. 
Okay, so we should fix these things, right? Let's, let's look at some smart examples, some good examples to get inspiration from. And one is the pill pack. So this is a pack of pills that says when you take which pill, and, and all your pills, so many people who have chronic conditions have multiple pills, all the pills you need to take at that time are in that pack, and you just keep pulling it out of this box that's been pre-prepared. It tries to design for anticipated error. Another example is the kitchen safe. This is great for people with self-control problems. It is a real product and makes a great Christmas gift or Valentine's gift maybe, since that's coming up. So if you have something that tempts you, a food, a video game, your smartphone, and you want to not use it for a period of time or consume it for a period of time, you put it in the box. You put the cap on the box. You turn the dial for seconds, minutes, hours. You can even turn it for days. And then you press it down and it locks. And it will not open until the timer is done. So you, you cannot access it even if you are tempted. And then there's Clocky, one of my favorites. This is an alarm clock that sits on the side of your bed. And when your alarm goes off and you hit snooze, it rolls off to some random part of your room. So when the snooze alarm goes off, you have to get up. Um, I think there's a Japanese version with a helicopter, <laughs> which would not work in a loft. Uh, but again, it designs for the fact that we have limited self-control. It anticipates the shortcuts that we take and uh, the problems that we fall prey to. This is another example that I love. I took this in uh, Nordstrom Rack at Chicago and um, uh, Michigan. That, that, and everyone's been to Nordstrom Rack, you know that? This is in the dressing room, at least it was a few months ago. Those are the only two options. There's no, like, I don't want to buy this. So it's like a little bit of an environmental design to get me to purchase. Okay, so again, how about a really hard decision? This is a urinal. This is a urinal in the Amsterdam airport where apparently they had a spillage problem. So I think this must be a hard decision for that to be happening. They put a fly in it. Some of you may have heard this before. And the spillage problem went away. There are some wonderful examples online that you can buy where you buy the faces of world leaders that you hate um, and you stick them there. There's ones where you can have a, a goal in a soccer ball. Anyway, all this is said, it helps men with the hard decisions that they have to make. Uh, or a high stakes decision in all seriousness. This is quite pertinent. Um, I just added this this morning. So the incident that happened in Hawaii with the 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 false real alarm. I don't even know how to call it. It's not a false alarm because it was a real alarm, but it was false. Anyway, was that because this person was an idiot? Or was it because this is what they were looking at? This is what they were supposed to click? This is what they clicked. The only difference in language is the word drill here. Like, of course someone's going to mess up at that at some point. And there's no check. There's no stopgap. Like, even my, um, my QuickBooks that I use, my software, which is desktop version from like the 1980s, when I want to update my file for my accountant, it makes me type yes to confirm. I mean, if QuickBooks from the 1980s have figured it out, I don't know why they didn't figure that out for those alerts. Um, and actually, Steven, who's doing the technology designed for error with this little thingy that they're, they're audio recording with me on, like, I think if I touch anything, nothing happens. Like, there's no way for me to screw it up. He's muted all the, or he's, You've, what, you've, you've deactivated this thing so that I can't screw you up. Yeah, so designing for errors, really important, even for people like me. Okay, so what makes environmental design smart? Why are all those great examples? Because it works with, not against our mental shortcuts. And we're gonna talk about 
uh, three different examples that will hopefully help you in your everyday decisions right now. So how do we design for your mental shortcuts when you want to eat healthy and work out, when you want to date that special someone, and when you want to placate children, or in my case, students? Let's start with eating healthy and working out. So we already went through this a little bit, but let's say you're on a diet and you're walking around the office and people have those little candy bowls. This is the worst thing in the world. You can see all of the candy. It's right there in your face every time you pass by. Better would be an opaque bowl, where especially as the candy went down, you can't really see it. Or a kitchen safe, or an opaque kitchen safe. It's very small, subtle changes to your environment whether it be at work or at home, can help nudge you to not eat the tempting goods that you want to eat. Another simple example around eating healthy um, comes from two clients that I've worked for. These are pictures of their salad bar. These are actual things that they had up in the salad bar of their cafeteria. So you imagine if you work at a big office, some of you might, where there's a cafeteria and a salad bar, and you want to eat healthy, you run in from between all of your meetings, and you're like, I'm going to get a salad, I'm going to get in line, and the line is getting in, front of, uh, in back of you, and you're in a rush. How do you make the decision? Is like, well, olives healthy? Like, they're vegetable, right? I think they're vegetable. Olives are kind of healthy, but maybe they're fatty. I don't know. How do you make all of those decisions on all of the ingredients you're passing by under time pressure to get to your next meeting and not hold up the line? This is their solution. Color code the tongs. So if I'm like, I gotta really eat healthy, I'm just gonna go for the green tongs. I don't have to make a decision on every single one of the items. Uh, so working, working out is where I struggle more on than the food side, and so I'm going to share with you some of my trials and tribulations here in the hopes that you avoid them. This is a timeline um, of my behavior over the last several years. So in January 2014, I lived up in Lakeview, and I bought a membership at Southport Gym for myself and for my husband. I went maybe like 10 times that year. My husband didn't go at all. Money down the drain. Unhappy. January 2015, I'm like, I'm going to work out this year. Um, and I had heard about and gotten into Bikram yoga. I'm like, all right, this would be good. It's going to be like kind of calming and focused and stretching. I'm going to go. And so on New Year's Day, I went with one of my friends and bought a 20-pack. Uh, it expired like in six months. I could go 20 times in six months. That's not hard. Um, I did it that day. Didn't do it again <laughs> at all. The next January 2016, January 1st, uh, again, as like a New Year's resolution with my friend, went to Bikram Yoga. This time I didn't buy the 20 pack. I bought like just a one time and I was like, well, if I go again, I'll buy the 20 pack. And so I did go again two days later. I was like, yeah, I'm on a roll. I'll buy the 20 pack. Didn't go after that. <laughs> uh, 2017, I swear to God, I'm really slow at learning, guys. I did the same thing. Um, this time, though, I went six times, and then I stopped going. So I wasted 14. All right, so um, uh, 2018, this is what I have done, is I found a yoga studio near me, Core Power Yoga. It's a little different from Bikram, and they have non-expiring 10-packs. This is like my dream. And I actually go, which is really bizarre. My habits have changed to go more often now. So. This is not an uncommon story, right? I mean, mine's probably pretty extreme, but a lot of us have bought memberships and not really fulfilled it or not worked out as much as we want. This is a pretty common problem. Um, and I will show you data actually from uh, a data set of 8,000 people suffering from a similar problem as me. So this is a study um, done back in 2004. 
of three US health clubs. And they had three different types of things you could buy, simplified. You could buy a 10-visit pass for $100. I don't think it expired. Uh, a monthly membership for 70 per month, or a yearly membership for $700 per year. So, it's a quick math problem for you. How many times did you have to go per month to make the monthly worth it? Seven, seven times. And the yearly, how many times did you have to go per year? 70 visits per year, or on average, five to six visits per month. So, ostensibly, people are making this mental calculation when they're figuring out what they want to do. They want to go to the gym, but they're not sure which to buy. They're looking at this menu, and they're making predictions on the frequency with which they'll go. Kind of like I did, although I failed. What do they do? So did these subscribers, the people who were members, did they decide right when they were looking at those options? Well, we can look at data based on how often they went and what they effectively paid per visit. So this is two years of data for people who are in the system for two years on a monthly renewing membership. So if you started in January, it'd be here. If you started in March, it would be here. This is sort of sequential going over time. And this is the effective price you paid per visit in each of these months. So one data point here. On average, these people paid about $15 per visit in month two, meaning they went about four to five times. That's a little lower than would have been rational. And on the yearly side, we have the same type of data. Like, for instance, around midpoint here, they paid $19 per visit in month 11 because they went about three times. So this is actual data from these 8,000 members. And let me remind you, the 10-visit pack was $10 per visit. <laughs> Almost every single data point is above here. These are averages, of course, so there are some people who are optimal, but not, not that many. And if you were monthly, you ended up paying about $24 a visit and yearly about $20 per visit. So I am not alone in my problems in this decision. One thing to actually ask you about, can you, can you guess what's happening here for these people who, on average, are doing better at this one point? Yeah, New Year's resolutions, right? They go way more in January. It's called the fresh start effect. OK, so the question for talking about designing decisions, if you're a gym owner or a gym member, are these memberships rational? Are they, are they designed in a way to help with decision making, or are they just there to screw us up? What do you think? Screw us up? Maybe. It depends on your counterfactual. If you were not subscribing to that gym, would you go at all? If you wouldn't go at all and the gym membership made you go once or twice, maybe it was good design because at least it got you to go in the first place. But ways that memberships could be better designed to help with our decisions are as follows. They could have more frequent billing. There's a concept called payment transparency that basically says when we can see us like losing the cash, losing the money to pay for something, we want to get more benefits out of it. So imagine if your smartphone pinged you every week, maybe they build you every week rather than up front, and you'd be like, oh crap, I gotta go. It'll remind you, it makes the cost more salient, and then you wanna get the benefit from it. Another way they could do is have you overpay and refund you for every visit you do. Like, you may hate that, I'm sure they'd love it from the cash flow perspective, but it might make you go because every time you don't get your butt out, you know you're literally losing money. Uh, and finally, there's a concept um, discovered by Katie Melkman in 2014 called Temptation Bundling. And her clever idea was to take students going to the Harvard Business School gym and give them an iPod with the Hunger Games or some other tempting story or um, a video on it. 
but they could only access this iPod if, it was, if they went to the gym. It was locked in a gym locker where they couldn't access it. So she bundled the temptation with the hard thing to do. So you could maybe rent a locker from your gym and put like a trashy novel um, or DVDs, not that those exist anymore. You can put your iPad in there and only access it when you're there. So that's eating healthy and working out. Let's go to a way more important topic, which is dating. So there's a lot of apps out there. I'm sure I don't even have the most uh, modern ones up. For those who are single and using any of these apps, do you fully consider every single possible option? Are you like on Tinder just going like this all day? It's OK to admit if you do. I won't judge. Yes or no? No. No, right? You, you, it would be stupid. You don't have time to do that. So data also would suggest that. Uh, a study done on OkCupid shows that people typically don't consider every single option, and they use something called elimination by aspects. So if we go back to those shortcuts we take, this is the shortcut that a lot of people on these apps take. They eliminate people from their consideration based on one or more characteristics, a characteristic that is ostensibly so important that if you don't meet it, I'm not even going to look at your profile. Like, you could filter for them. So I'm going to show you, by OkCupid's data, what men eliminate women by and what women eliminate men by, <laughs> just so you can know and be informed. So men eliminate women by one trait predominantly. What do you think it is? Hair color? But I heard another one over here. That was right. Age. Indeed, it is age. So this is not the prettiest graph from their paper. But all you kind of have to focus on is here, where it spikes, where the decisions change, as about 30%. They like women who are about 30% younger than them or more overall in this population. How about women? What single characteristic is the most important for women to mentally cut off and sort men by? Hi, you got it. God, you guys know this stuff. All right. <laughs> so the cutoff is three to four inches. They want men to be three to four inches taller than them, on average. So this means that people aren't sitting at their phones looking at every option, considering every combination of traits. They're just not going to look at certain people. Maybe some of you do that. Is this shortcut helpful? Is this designing your decisions wisely? Are dating apps that allow you to filter by these traits helping you in your decision or hurting you? What do you think? Hurting. Hurting. I would agree. My case being Bruno Mars. <laughs> Bruno Mars does not meet my height requirement, and I do not meet his age requirement. But we were meant to be. Um, <laughs> I did run this by my husband, who incidentally also wouldn't have met my height criteria, and I wouldn't have made his age criteria. So I would argue these filters are not necessarily doing us justice because there could be this perfect person out there, or almost perfect, don't tell him I said that, <laughs> that could be a good match and that you're filtering out because you're making a, a very strong uh, cutoff. So be very careful on the filters you use. They're really good at saving you time. You can't look at everyone, but, but be aware that Bruno Mars could be out there and you could just not ever be matched with him. All right, so let's say you found that special someone, your boyfriend, girlfriend, your spouse, how about designing your dates? I will show you a very typical conversation in the Gandhi household until about six months ago. What do you want to do this weekend? I don't know. What do you want to do? I asked you first. <laughs> right? 
there's all these different things we could do for a Tuesday night or on the weekend, and we want to spend time, but when you think about all of those options, the burden of picking the thing we do, I don't want to think about it. I don't have time. It's too many options to consider. So what we switched to about six months ago is as follows. The one with the yellow hair is me. That was a beautiful clip art. So I suggest some options, like usually around five or six. So let's say we're going out to dinner. I suggest five or six options that I see have availability on open table at the time we want. He narrows it down to two. I pick one. He lives with it. <laughs> I swear to God, we went from choice overload and inertia to marital bliss. This has solved so many problems. Anytime we have to make a decision about vacation, things to do for a weekend, like anything like that, have somebody just narrow it down to something smaller, the next person narrow it down to two, and then choose one and be done with it. A great solution for staying married. <clears throat> okay, the last and final section would be if you are dealing with children in your life, or in my case, students. I, I do actually have some children in my life. I don't have children of my own, but this is my adorable nephew, who is a lion for Halloween. This is him crying, though. This is not his roar. This is him being very upset. I do not understand why, because you get candy on Halloween. He should be happy. So how do we deal when Samir is unhappy? Like, how do we help him design decisions so we get to outcomes that everybody's happy about? Similarly, um, I love my students almost as much as I love my nephew, but they can get unhappy often with grades. At Chicago Booth, we have a very strict curve at B+. I literally cannot enter grades. It will not let it me. It will not accept them in the system if the average of the grades is above a B plus. Like if it's 3.34, it rejects it. So I tell my students in the beginning of class, if you are taking a class like mine, that is a little more subjective. It's more about qualitative work you do, not a multiple choice answer that I know is absolutely wrong. The distribution of grades here tends to not be so wide. It's pretty squished. You know, everyone does pretty well, unless you don't try. Which means, guess what? Everyone gets a B plus, unless you're super exceptional. People don't like that. Even if I tell them in the beginning of class, I tend to get complaints about grades. I mean, I was that person, so I can't. I would have complained as well. Um, but how do you deal with it? How do I design the grading system to avoid decisions to write a nasty email <laughs> to me or the TA? The secret weapon involves both of these situations, or perhaps for unhappy colleagues if you have those, is framing. Let me show you a lovely example of framing. You go to the grocery store and you want to buy meat. You see this ground beef that says 85% lean. Next to it, you see ground beef that says 15% fat. Which one do you choose? You, people. Choose the lean one. It's literally the same thing. But people tend to like lean. In fact, in some studies of this, people think the lean one tastes better. <laughs> it's literally the same thing, guys. Uh, more examples of framing would be uh, retail situations. So a lot of small businesses give you a discount if you use cash. Some of them give you a fee if you use credit. It's the same thing. And yet, People are like very happy to get a cash discount or have that opportunity for a cash discount, even if they don't take it. But they're like super pissed off to be, I don't want to be charged a fee for my credit card. But literally, had they switched the sign to discounts, people would be happier. Uh, fun fact, the credit card companies have lobbied the government around the rules for small businesses to make sure it was a discount more often than it was a surcharge, because they knew people would be unhappy. 
An even more important example of framing comes from end-of-life planning. So there are people out there who consult you and advise you as you plan for end-of-life. How much money are you going to need? What health care expenses do you anticipate? Your family? How, what's your longevity going to be? So we can plan for this accordingly. They can sit down with you and ask, to what age will you live? Or they can ask, by what age will you die? I think we can agree that's the same thing, right? What do people say on average? If I'm asked the first question, I tend to say around 85. If I'm asked the second, 75. This impacts what people are doing for retirement end of life planning. It's a huge deal for something as small as that to be changing the decision that they're doing. So this is an example of even language being a way to design decisions and choices people get to. Oh, actually, the reason this happens, in case you're curious, is that by thinking about living here, you think about your health and you think about all the things you're doing to live long, whereas if I frame it negatively, you think, well, my grandma had cancer um, and my back is starting to hurt, and you, you what brings to mind more negative things, and so it, it uh, subdues the number that you give. This was a framing example as well, loosely constrained. So this is an implicit default. There are more options out there, like throw it on the floor, you don't want it, but it's not what they suggest to you. They have framed, loosely constrained, the decision to be mostly positive. So in framing it this way, there's only a couple of options. Okay, so for children, this is my, my nephew Samir and his cousin Ravi, who did not want to go to bed around Christmas. We kept saying, do you want to go to bed? Because Santa's going to come. The earlier you go to bed, the earlier Santa will come and you can get presents. And they didn't want to go to bed. So instead, we started saying, do you want to jump or fly into bed? There was no option not to go to bed. Or do you want to sleep with a yellow or purple bubble guppy? You haven't heard of bubble guppies. You will if you have kids. They're huge. So you frame the question in a way that designs the decision that you want them to get to. Uh, or with Samir, who's become a bit of a picky eater these days, uh, we, this is spaghetti, which he loves. But he also loves this Indian uh, dish called kichidi, which is like a really great comfort food if you're sick or you're tired. He loves it. So we've just been putting yellow food coloring in stuff and calling it kichidi. And then he eats it. <laughs> it's the best. Now, the same type of technique um, with framing more literally constrained works with my students. So I've taught this same class as a TA and now as a professor for four, almost five years now. So I've gone through a couple different grading systems to try and get rid of student complaints about grading. What we started out with was the scale of a one to five, where five is just, it's so rare. A four is also pretty rare. A three is basically what you should be aiming for. It means you met expectations. Great job, solid. You should be happy with a three. Very rarely were fours and fives given out. But you can imagine, on a scale of one to five, who wants a three? No one wants to be average. So we got a ton of complaints. I had people lining up out of my door wanting to get more points. So what I did last year is this. I scored them on a scale of one to three, and then in text below that, I said, look, some papers that go above and beyond me get one or two bonus points. It's literally the same grading scheme, guys. But they didn't realize it, and complaints went way down. Framing, it's like the same thing. You feel free to steal it if you're a, a professor. And then, of course, on me, framing has worked as well. Last fall, um, there was a, or we had a, a neighbor that smoked a lot and was a bit noisy, and that kept coming into our apartment, both the smoke and the noise, and it was not really fun to live there. 
Um, we were in a rental building. And so the people who managed the rental building said, okay, we are, are happy to help you switch apartments to somewhere else in the building. Uh, it just kind of depends on when people leave and what opens up. One thing did open up right away that was on a higher floor and was slightly bigger. It's actually a pretty pretty, beautiful view. Um, and it was a little more expensive accordingly. So we asked ourselves, well, do you want to pay $100 more per month for a bit more space? Now, we could have waited. We had the option to say, take this or wait maybe in a couple more weeks and something else will open up at the same price point and you won't have to pay more. So we were asking ourselves, well, do we want to pay more and move? And we were like, yeah. I mean, we'll get rid of the problem. It's a bigger apartment, $100 a month. That's not like a ton of money. That's fine. We can do that. And then we realized, oh, snap. Or I was going to say shit, but I swear to him. Now I just said it. OK, anyway, <laughs> we were like, what if we reframed this? We did get dorky and do this. Do you want to give up a little space to save $100 a month? We were like, yeah. Uh, rent is not cheap. We would love to save money. That's the easiest thing to save money on, is lowering your rent. And we had this problem where we said yes to both questions. And so it really helped us realize we were actually quite uncertain about what option we preferred. We did ultimately end up moving because I just couldn't stand the smoke anymore. But if you are ever facing a tough decision with high stakes, I highly recommend reframing the question on yourself and seeing how you legitimately answer in both frames of mind. It will help you make a far more rational decision so that you can get rid of any of the bias from the framing. OK, so we just went through a ton. This is me and Samir again. We design decisions to eat healthy and work out, to find and date that special someone, and to placate children and students. But I am not doing good decision design if I were to leave you right here. Remember, the things that make environmental design smart is to work with, not against your mental shortcuts. Those are a ton of information in a short period of time is not a good way for you to remember anything. So the one thing to remember, your one mental shortcut that I hope you remember is this guy, which we started with. Kurt Lewin's equation. Behavior, decisions are a function of the person and the environment. Let's focus more on the environment. Let's design decisions for ourselves, our colleagues, our families to help us get to better outcomes and not be subject to our drunken lemur state all the time. Thank you so much for your attention and for showing up tonight. Please stay in touch. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life. And our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.